Attention everyone, this is an emergency broadcast. The unpleasant noise you are about to hear coming from your radio is not a mistake. Please do not turn off your radio, but turn up the volume on your receiver as high as it can go so that you can make the sound we broadcast as loud as possible. The monsters will now start attacking Tokyo. You may wish to deny it, but your eyes tell you it's true. Sound. I'll turn up the sound so you can hear the monsters dueling to the deck. Welcome to episode 271 of the Kaiju Cast, a podcast 100% dedicated to Godzilla and all of his rubber-suited foes. My name is Kyle, and this is the fourth episode of August 2019. That's like double our normal output for anyone who might have discovered us somewhat recently. Regardless, I'm quite excited to share this conversation with you all, and we'll be getting to that in just a minute. But first, I have to get some really brief housekeeping announcements out of the way. If you are in or near the Portland, Oregon area, don't miss Godzilla-thon happening this weekend at the Hollywood Theater. I'll be doing some intros for the films, and there will be some cool Godzilla stuff on display in the lobby. It all starts Friday, August 30th at 7 p.m. with Destroy All Monsters, but they'll also be playing Godzilla on Monster Island, Godzilla vs. Megalon, and Godzilla vs. the Cosmic Monster on the big screen, all in 35mm. Through Sunday, September 1st, there's a link in the show notes to the Godzilla-thon page on the Hollywood Theater website. It is going to be awesome, so please come out to that. Secondly, the fourth entry in the T-Shirt of the Month Club series is up for pre-order right now and will be available for pre-order through the first half of September. Make sure to check the link in the show notes to that T-Shirt design and pre-order it before the cutoff date to get your shirt shipped to you. Also, very relevant to this conversation that we are going to be having right now. Let's talk about it. Last night, I was in San Francisco, California to interview our guest for this episode. Mad, mad shout-outs go to Bob Johnson, Bay Area Film Events, and the Balboa Theater for their hospitality, not only for giving me the opportunity to speak with our guest, but also for the awesome little behind-the-projector room where I conducted this interview. In this episode of the Kaiju Cast, I sit down for a chat with the director of Legendary Pictures, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Michael Doherty. Now, don't forget that Godzilla, King of the Monsters also comes out on Blu-ray and DVD and I think 4K tomorrow, August 27th. That's about all I'm going to talk about right now. So let's hear one of the TV spots for Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and then get right into that conversation with Mike Doherty. Rodan. Chidora. Mothra. How many of these things are there? They're everywhere. It's comforting. We need a giant monster on our side. My God. Zilla. Oh, yeah, sure. Let's bring him in for a beer. Godzilla, king of the monsters. So I am sitting here inside of the historic Balboa Theater in the break room, actually, talking with director Mike Doherty, the director of Godzilla, King of the Monsters, amongst other things. Uh, Mike, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. So first and foremost, I just want to congratulate you on what I really consider to be like a smashing success for a <laughs> kaiju, an American-made kaiju film. Thanks. Like, the movie hit all of what I consider to be like the right notes in what I would imagine an American giant monster movie should be. 
So can you tell us a little bit about, well, actually, let's talk about your career before Godzilla, because you did Krampus and you did Trick or Treat, mm-hmm. which are both fantastic films. Thanks. Uh, how did you get into the seat of Godzilla from those films? Uh, I mean, a lot of it was right place, right time. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I started making movies with Legendary uh, way back in 2007 with Trick or Treat. That was actually Legendary's first movie. Not a lot of people no know way. that. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. They had co-financed some movies for Warner Brothers, but this Trick or Treat was the first movie produced by Legendary. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I have a very long relationship with them. They gave me my very first uh, directing opportunity. And they knew that I loved monsters. Mm-hmm. They knew that I love all things sci-fi, horror, fantasy, um, in particular monster movies. Yeah, yeah. So I had just finished Krampus for them and was taking a break. And it just so happened that uh, Gareth told them that he wasn't going to be able to make it back for the Godzilla sequel because he was right, still working yeah. on uh, Rogue One. So, you know, Legendary likes to keep it in the family and they asked if I would be interested. I'm assuming that answer was, let me think about it. No, it was a very, very quick and enthusiastic yes. Maybe I should have said I'll think about it so that I had more leverage in negotiating, but I just, you know, my childhood uh, energy just took over. By the way, I don't even know if you can hear it on the recording, but we can hear uh, uh, Destroy All Monsters playing in the background. That's so rad. So earlier yeah. I, was EJ, I was interviewing TJ, and you could hear both, um, <laughs> I think it was Godzilla... Well, King of the Monsters was on one screen, mm. and I think Mothra was on the other it's screen. Like the other. It was like this yeah. crazy, cool like background noise. It was really great. So speaking of legendary and this new monster verse, you know, these movies they're getting a large budget, right? Like this mm-hmm. the budgets you guys have are way bigger than Japan, but they're still not like massive, massive American movies, right? Like for the budgets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they you know they they obviously they cost more than the Toho produced films, mm-hmm. but they cost less than a lot of the other tentpole blockbusters out there. They're yeah. reasonable. Yeah, I was sort of like doing the I think what I would consider it to be the the production budget, right? Like mm-hmm. I just looked at the production budget for 2014, the Pacific Rim movies, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, and you guys all kind of have about the same budget for these things. So is legendary. Uh, they are they happy with how these movies are sort of shaking out with the amount of money that they're putting into them? I think so. Yeah. I mean, otherwise they wouldn't still be making them. <laughs> Excellent point. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was really happy with King of the Monsters, by the way. Thanks. And, um, the listeners to the podcast know that for the first film, the 2014 film, I, I like the monster action most, but mm-hmm. the the human action in King of the Monsters really, I thought, helped drive the entire story. Mm. And I was literally in for the whole thing. I was cool. totally happy with it. Uh, in fact, I told, I'll try not to do this too many more times, but I told TJ earlier that leading up to King of the Monsters, I did not watch almost anything. I watched one or two trailers, and hey, then I went in completely. That's how you should do it. I like honestly. it, really. You know, <laughs> I, like I, it. I tend to find that I like movies more the less I know about them going in. Yeah. And I yeah. do think that um, if you're constantly exposing yourself to the marketing, whether that be every trailer and every TV commercial that comes out, you're kind of ruining it for yourself. Yeah, you know, right? I know, totally. I know there's yeah. a lot of complaints online, like, oh, stop showing us so much. Stop, <laughs> yeah. you're showing too much in the in the TV commercials. Like, well, watching the commercials or the trailers is your choice. Yeah, totally, No one's right? forcing, no one's taping your eyeballs open. <laughs> 
you know, you kind of do have to tape your eyeballs shut in a sense to like avoid some of that stuff because it's like I'd be in a bar and like, oh, there's a Godzilla trailer playing on the, on then the TV over there. So I totally you know, like, like did that. It's like yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark. You don't close your eyes, Marion, you know. Well, so the, the point that I was going to say is that because I held myself back from seeing any of that stuff, I didn't see any of the uh, behind the scenes interviews with you. Mm. And I had no idea how much of a big Godzilla fan you actually are. Yeah, man. And so I think the very first thing I listened to was your interview, your panel from Monster Palooza. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, this guy knows his work. <laughs> I mean, I had already seen the movie mm. at that point, but I was like really happy. And then I just kind of devoured anything I could find online of you guys talking about the film. Like, I was really impressed that uh, Kyle Chandler went and just binged all the Godzilla yeah. movies just yeah. to make sure he knew about the history. That was homework. super cool. Yeah, a super lot of the cool. cast did. A lot of the cast got into it. Once you had the job, what was the very first thing you did to celebrate? Hmm. You know what? I don't remember. I do know that I went home and even before I even got the job, uh, when it was just uh, sort of a whisper I just started watching the movies, and I went back and even looked at like the Hanna Barbera cartoons. Oh, wow! Because <laughs> I love those too. I grew yeah, up watching yeah. those just as much as the old movies, um, and I just I just started burying myself in it because it was a dream come true, you know, to to watch Godzilla movies on a weekday in the middle of the afternoon is just the best job ever. Yeah. Do you remember what your first Godzilla movie was? I don't. I mean, I was so young. Yeah. I was, you know, it was 1977, probably. So yeah, yeah. Knows. Uh, any of them strike you from your memory as, like, one of your favorite films that you grew up with? Well, I mean, I do remember how much um, Godzilla vs. Hedorah or the Smog Monster terrified me. Cool. As a kid. Yeah. Like, it was... Scary film for kids. Yeah, that and War of the Gargantuas just had some really grisly imagery in it that um, messed me up in all the right ways. <laughs> you know, I think it's important for kids to sort of be pushed to their limits a little bit in yes. terms of yes. uh, uh, scary imagery because it, it makes you stronger. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I uh, My son is now 21, but he grew up on like Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. And so when he was a little kid, there were other parents that were like, you let your child watch that scary movie? I'm like, that is not a scary movie. Yeah. I see. It's it's <laughs> it's those parents' kids that are going to be the messed up ones. They are. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so talk, let's talk a little bit about your directing this film. So I know because of my studying Japanese films that a lot of times there are a separate like first unit dealing with actors mm -hmm. and a second unit dealing with visual effects. Now that's the Japanese style of doing mm -hmm. things. How is it for American directors, specifically you and how you worked with Godzilla King of the Monsters? Um, I mean, American films do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, pretty much every American uh, big tentpole movie has multiple units. Mm -hmm. So main unit, first unit tends to happen um, or tends to handle you know, all the scenes with your main actors, your main characters, mm -hmm. all the dialogue, um, and still a lot of the action. Uh, what you tend to do is you sort of parse out what main unit is going to handle, and then you hand over certain things to second unit, which will be uh, a certain amount of visual effect shots, certain action sequences, and that's what we did. But what I did on this movie was I prevised every single action sequence. Mm -hmm. So... You know, there was a template, there was a roadmap for second unit. So if I was handing off shots or uh, moments within scenes, 
uh, they had to follow that to a T. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah, And that yeah. was my biggest note always. The second unit was shoot it like the brief is. That's why it's there. So while you might not have been directly there with the unit shooting those scenes, mm-hmm. you had a hand in the, oh, the yeah. sculpting of those scenes. I mean, they yeah, yeah they had I, I was watching what they were doing on a monitor next to my main setup. Uh, or I was having footage sent over to me. Like there was there was one point when uh, I was shooting main unit with uh, Kyle Chandler and the Wolves for the beginning of the film, while second unit was in Mexico, mm, uh, right. shooting a lot of uh, footage of people running in terror from Rodan, and they were literally texting it to me, you know? <laughs> and so I would call cut on main unit and then run into my tent and on an iPad or a laptop, watch what second unit was doing in Mexico wow. um, and texting them notes or hopping on the phone. So it was a pretty hairy day. Wow. So how long did it take you guys to shoot the the human scenes of the film? Like uh, uh, you know, from day well, one to- We had a 72 day shoot. Okay. Yeah. All right. Right on. Yeah. And did you do a lot of traveling? Because I know a lot of it was shot in Atlanta, right? Yeah, it was mostly yeah. Atlanta, yeah. Uh, which is a fantastic place to shoot. Really great crews. Um, and it can pretty much double for almost anything. Uh, that's the beauty of the technology, the VFX these days, is you can take pretty much any environment and turn it into anything you want. Yeah. I was listening to the commentary. And uh, O'Shea Jackson called it Yollywood. <laughs> I was laughing my ass off about it. That sounds like something you would say, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you mentioned in that, specifically talking about the visual effects additions, you mentioned that at one point you guys were on a soundstage, but you used so much visual effects to just make it look like the Antarctic, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just... One big soundstage, but, you know, adding the breath, adding the snow, Mm -hmm. adding the wind, all that kind of stuff really helps bolster that look into what you feel. You feel cold when you're in that scene. Yeah, Yeah, and funny enough, that's where uh, my experience with Krampus came into play. Oh, right. Because we didn't use the exact same technique on that movie. It was a big uh, blue screen stage in uh, New Zealand with fake snow and atmosphere, right. and then we added the digital breath later. So that was the beauty of Trick or Treat and Krampus um, before Godzilla was that you know each of those films was sort of a great training ground uh, that built up to Godzilla. They were much smaller. You know, Trick or Treat was twelve million bucks, and Krampus was fifteen, but they were complicated. Uh, little movies that involved visual effects, practical effects, lots of atmospheric things. Um, so they were both sort of like perfect training montages for Godzilla. Oh, super cool. Creature design, yeah. all of it, yeah. You mentioned practical effects. I'm kind of wondering, like, obviously, we all know Godzilla, Rodan, Mothra, King Ghidorah are all CGI in this film. Yeah. but. Did you get to work in any cool practical effects? Because I know Trick or Treat had a lot of good practical yeah, stuff. Yeah, I mean, there. the smaller monster movies, I think, are, are better suited for practical effects because then you can you know bust out the puppets. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Godzilla movies, not as much, uh, at least not the ones of, of this scale. Uh, but we actually did build Ghidorah's tooth for one scene that got cut. Whoa. So we had a giant tooth that was, I think, I want to say like nine, ten feet tall. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we had built a patch of Godzilla's skin for Ken Watanabe to touch. Yes. And that was pretty much it. He booped Godzilla's snoot. Yes, he did. <laughs> That's what my friend likes to say. Yes. Yeah. It was- He's the only character in any Godzilla movie ever to touch Godzilla affectionately. Way to go, Ken Watanabe. Yeah, if you're going to go out, I mean, that's how I want to go Right? Out. Totally. Uh, are, so are you the kind of guy, the kind of director that likes to get involved with 
all of the processes or because you said you did the previs stuff beforehand. Mm -hmm. Do you say, here's what it needs to look like? And then do you just sort of hands off on it until the the end result comes to you or do you like to get in there and I like really to, I get mean, involved with the whole process? I'm, I'm a control freak. Yeah. Uh, but it's also a matter of part of directing is a matter of knowing when to keep your hands on the wheel versus mm. take your hands off. Uh, because you have to give your creative collaborators, whether that's your DP or your production designer, your costume designer, et cetera, room to experiment and play, you know, in the same way that I need the studio to give me room mm -hmm. and not be such a control freak, you know, all the time. Uh, you have to do the same thing with your crew members because they're also artists. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's just a matter of like sort of guiding and nudging and but then trusting your crew, whether it's um, your crew crew or your even your cast. Mm -hmm. Um, to just do their thing and see what sort of comes out of the spontaneity. Very cool. So when I first heard, because I saw the movie, the 2014 film when it came out, and then I know that I think that same year at Comic-Con, that's when they dropped the news about Rodan, Mothra, and King Ghidra mm -hmm. being added. And I think, I mean, I'll shamefully admit, I was just kind of like, well, there's no way they're going to be able to work King Ghidra into the second film. <laughs> How are people going to believe that a giant space dragon, three-headed <laughs> space dragon, is going to come down? I just couldn't imagine it. But you guys did it. And you did it really well. How did people react to King Ghidra like non-Godzilla fans? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, that's a really good question. Yeah. Maybe you should interview <laughs> some non-Godzilla fans. For this show? I don't think I don't so. Know. Yeah. <laughs> As he seemed to go over pretty well. Yeah, I thought he looked really great. I mean, just to tell you how some reactions were from non-Godzilla fans, my wife is not a Godzilla fan. Mm -hmm. And she was like, wow, I have never seen Ghidra look like imposing and villainous mm -hmm. like he has in that film. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a pretty good barometer yeah. on how Ghidra Yeah, wives did. are good barometers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about bringing some of those monsters to life, right? So we had uh, each of those creatures, even Godzilla, went through some design phases a few. In, this, in this movie. He yeah. looks a little bit different than the last film. I'm sure my listeners already know he's got the cooler spikes, look way more like the 54 film. Mm -hmm. uh, you guys tweaked out his feet a little bit too, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I really, really loved Gareth's design from 2014. Uh, I saw an early maquette of it at Legendary one day and was just drooling over it. But oh, even God. even on that maquette, uh, and then obviously into the finished film, I just said, you know, there's just a few things, nips and tucks <laughs> that I would do. Um, only because I, I love science and animals and biology. Uh, and uh, there were just a, a couple things I wanted to change. Uh, his back spikes, you know, being the most famous one because I truly love the design of the, the back spikes from 54. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's an elegance to them. They look sculpted. They almost look like fossilized fire, like a fire could Ooh, be fossilized, yes. you know. Yes. Um, and so I literally just uh, photoshopped the spikes, uh, three or four spikes off 54 and then cut and pasted them onto the 2014 design and sent that to the creature designers. And I said, here it is. Just make it like this. Um, and, you know, the rationale for that was that, well, it's been five years since that, that particular adventure. And much like deer and elk, antlers grow and change. Mm, right. You know, I or your hair grows. I figured, well, Godzilla spikes would naturally change over five years mm -hmm. or get bigger. Uh, and then the feet... I just felt like, you know, they had sort of an elephant design uh, or 
brontosaurus or a patasaurus design uh, in 2014. Right. And that was an interesting choice, but Godzilla is not an herbivore like those animals. Godzilla is a predator. He's a carnivore. Uh, and so he would ne- he would have bigger clawed toes yes because he would need them to tear into his prey uh and so that was almost a strictly biological sort of rationale well, that's a good rationale i like yeah. that very much um and then similar to that the tip of the tail you know like the pointed tail from 2014 that was a choice but I just don't think that a creature that gets into as many fights as Godzilla would, <laughs> that a pointed tail would actually survive. Um, and frankly, I like sort of the rounded club tail that he had in the old movies. Yes. Oh, by the way, thank you for including a massive tail swat in the Godzilla King Ghidorah fight. It was on the list. Yeah. Like there was a list of things and it almost didn't make it, but one of our VFX animators cracked it. And that's one of my favorite moments. So, talking about some of the other monster designs, I'm a huge Rodan fan. Me Ro- too. Rodan was actually my first monster movie ever. Oh, wow. Good uh, one. Little, little Kyle trivia. <laughs> I owned the Shogun Warriors Rodan before I ever saw the movie. I finally and got one. Excellent work. Yes, excellent I got work. one after the movie was greenlit. I finally, <laughs> that's like, that was like my holy grail from childhood, because like, I wanted one back in like 78, 79. I never got one. Santa Claus oh. never delivered. Yes. Yeah. I love how when you open his mouth, it just goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's that physical, old school, non electronic. Yeah, and the rubber stuff. band loaded feet. Yes. Yeah, which yes. were perfect for picking up Star Wars oh, figures. So good, so good. Anyway, the reason I bring up Rodan like that is to just you now illustrate how much love I have for the character. Yeah. But it's underappreciated. Out of all the times he's appeared in Toho movies, mm-hmm. the only time I really loved him was in that 1956 film. Mm. He looked so dangerous. He looked so raw as a monster. And there were two of them. And there were two of them. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, the Final Wars version of Rodan looks kind of cool. But when he showed up in this film, this is definitely, hands down, my favorite Rodan performance. Oh, cool. (laughs) His escape, I'm sure you get this all the time, his escape from the volcano Mm. was just masterfully done. Thanks. And when he launches himself off of the volcano and flies over the village and just starts flattening the houses with his wind, mm-hmm. ugh, I was in heaven. But taken straight out of the 56 movie. Right. And and that, you guys showed that in one of the first trailers that came out. And mm-hmm. I was like, I remember seeing that trailer. That was probably the last one I saw. And I was like, oh, it's like Rodan the movie. I'm in. <laughs> like, totally sold. Uh, did you have any specific design requests or, or anything that you told the designers that you said you wanted to see in Rodan? Uh, well, the, the big mandate for him was that he look and feel like an actual creature that nature would have concocted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I mean is we looked at a lot of birds of prey. So we looked at a lot of hawks and eagles. Vultures were a big one. Oh, okay, yeah. Because uh, you're beautiful but ugly. Like, they're so ugly, they're beautiful. Yes, definitely. Um, but very striking eyes. So we looked at a lot of um, their poses, their body language, uh, and then looked at textures. Because I thought, if this creature has evolved to survive inside of a volcano, then what if he has sort of, instead of having typical reptilian leathery scales that his body is actually sort of um, 
adapted and taken on the properties of lava rock. Yeah, you know, like lava. Yeah, it so it, like it is made it's, of rock and yeah, it, yeah, lovely. And the, the cool thing is that lava rock actually has that sort of maroon burgundy uh, color too. Oh yeah, definitely, uh, yeah. and that uh, was already part of his design scheme. You know, so it just it all just sort of happened organically. That's so cool. He he's probably my favorite designed monster mm. from the film. Oh, and here's one little bit of trivia on Rodan's look. Yeah, please. Uh, the first time I saw, and one of, one of my favorite aspects of his design process was that he was the only creature that was initially sculpted in clay. Oh. So, you know, we looked at a lot of digital sketches and silhouettes and it just, it wasn't really landing. And then this one uh, sculptor, I think his name was Tim Martin, uh, he just did it old school and built this giant clay maquette. And I was, it was beautiful. It was perfect. Uh, and then I looked at the head a little bit closer. And I was like, wow, it kind of reminds me of a Skeksy from Dark Crystal. And, yes. and he goes, and, and the sculptor goes, it is. <laughs> he said, it's <laughs> fantastic. You know, it's, it's not, it's not, you know, match for match, sure, poor yeah. for poor, but like yeah. there's an element of that. And, and I think the idea is that it's, you know, Jim Henson was a master at creating characters, um, Indeed, out yeah. of, um, you know, uh, animals and puppets and everything else. And if you're going to <laughs> crib from anybody, it might as well be Jim Henson. Yeah. Um, which is funny because Gareth actually was also inspired by uh, Dark Crystal creatures. The land striders from Dark Crystal were a direct inspiration for the Mutos. No way. Yes. I don't think I, I've ever heard that before. I That's know that awesome. for a fact that, that awesome. the Mutos were partially based on the land striders. <laughs> oh, dude. So Dark That's Crystal so cool. in the house. I'm a huge Dark Crystal fan. It's the too. best. Uh, you excited for the new series? Sidebar question. So excited. <laughs> All right. Can we talk a little bit about some of those other monsters? Mm -hmm. The Titans, yeah. specifically. The ones that aren't from Toho. Behemoth, Methuselah, mm -hmm. Scylla. Yeah. How did the design process happen for those? Like, did uh, you have a lot of notes? Yeah. 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 I had uh, really specific ideas in mind. Uh, I knew I wanted one that should feel like a giant spider because I, one of my favorite non Godzilla, uh, giant monster movies is tarantula. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, I think humans are just sort of innately genetically programmed to be afraid of spiders. Yeah. <laughs> so we looked at spiders and scorpions and, and sort of arrived at this sort of, um, is she, she's actually sort of almost more of a cephalopod. Oh yeah. So there's, you know, elements of, um, squids and crabs, but it sort of has a uh, spider-esque silhouette. Yes, um, but yeah. if you look at her up close, um, she's got other uh, traits. And I'm, the, the idea there is that she's supposed to be an aquatic creature, but uh, with the idea that her where she was buried in Arizona used to be aquatic. Oh, so she, that's okay. why she sort of uh, emerged from the desert. Um, but that's based on an ancient Greek myth, which is also one of my favorite monsters. Um, and then um, uh, Methuselah, uh, I love the name uh, and sort of the mythology behind the name. Mm -hmm. uh, and that one, like every time I see a mountain, I always imagine what would happen if that was really just a giant sleeping yeah. creature. Uh, and the idea that this particular monster is sort of an amalgamation of plant, rock, and animal. So I grew up in Atlanta, mm. actually, mm -hmm. and uh, when we would just go driving through the city, 
there are huge swaths of land. I'm guessing it's still this way that have just been overgrown by kudzu ivy. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so as a kid, I remember looking at the different formations mm-hmm. of that stuff just hanging off all sorts of different things, and I would totally see monsters yeah. inside of those. So That's why, similar, to this yeah. day, like when I'm driving like uh, along the West Coast, you know, through Santa Monica or Malibu, like I always pray to see a monster silhouette on the <laughs> yeah, horizon. Yeah, like right. that would just be a joyous day. Like <laughs> finally the old ones have awoken. Um, uh, and then uh, my favorite is Behemoth. And cool looking uh, monster for sure. Thanks. Yeah. And it's just, it's, he's my favorite because we hardly ever get uh, mammals, you know, outside yeah. of Kong and the gargantuas. I, uh, you know, there just aren't a lot of other, in King Caesar, there aren't a lot of other uh, mammals. And I thought, well, it'd be great if, you know, his history is more tied to the Ice Age. Yeah. And, you know, in that era, because people forget there were a lot of amazing um, prehistoric mammals out there saber toothed tigers, giant sloths. Uh, it's funny you mentioned the sloth because I thought that his. His stature reminded me of the giant it is. sloths. Yeah, yeah. He actually has. Uh, he has his his forearms are like giant sloth claws. Cool. The idea being that he could stand up on his hind legs and take a swat at you if he needed to. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I had sort of written a backstory for him. One trait that we didn't get to add to him was I actually wanted to see giant chains dragging behind him, um, sort of hinting at the idea that he might have been captive. Uh, buy some ancient civilization Ooh, and possibly yeah, use as yeah. like a war beast. Cool. Yeah. So did you write backstories for all of the Titans? That was more like a list of notes. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, had a lot of like in-depth conversations about, you know, why they are in the environments they're in. Uh, you know, the fact that they're based on mythological figures coming into play. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of ancient mythology and wanted to lace as much of that as possible in this. It looked like a lot of your your titans were named after mythological they all characters. Are. They're all all of them. Are? Pretty much all of them. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I noticed, of course, that Japan in Mount Fuji was mm-hmm. Yamato no Orochi. Mm-hmm. Did you have any ideas for what that would have looked like? Would we, it have been the eight headed dragon? I mean, the, you know, it, it, uh, we didn't get around to designing <laughs> yeah. that one. Uh, would have been very complicated, but uh, sadly, did not get to to take a stab at that one yet. Maybe, maybe later. Yeah. You know, those Titans, it seemed like uh, a lot of people, at least a lot of Godzilla fans at first, had that sort of reaction. Like, oh, they're supposed to be like the Toho Kaiju. But I never got that, uh, especially even after the trailers were happening. Like, I was like, these are original designs. Like, obviously, Toho charges money for these things. Mm -hmm. And I think anybody who understands that can understand why Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidra, and Rodan being in one movie is a gigantic dollar amount for those yeah. four monsters. So you wouldn't have the ability to go like rent more from Toho. They're not cheap. I mean, yeah. if we pushed, you know, I, I, it just, we, we, we looked and it's just, it's not cheap. And as much as I would have loved to have seen uh, the, some of the more familiar Toho uh, creatures, it's just, it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So um, <laughs> it's understandable though. But it's just, it's to me, it's, it's just as fun to come up with new ones. Well, I really liked what you did here. You'd said, I am not making a kaiju film. These are titans. You were very deliberate about well, calling them titans. Yeah, but in my mind, or at least in the Godzilla monsterverse, kaiju translates to titan. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, for for there weren't a lot, but for the occasional nerd who like gives me shit Twitter, you know, like why why, why why don't you just call them kaiju? It's like well, because Titan and kaiju are two sides of the same coin. So question about those Titans, those mm-hmm. other Titans. This last thing I'll ask about them: Did you have any hand in the novelization of the book? Yeah. Okay, because there's chapters mm-hmm. that go into the escape of Behemoth uh-huh. and other of those titans. I was wondering if you, did you have a hand in that at all? Like, no. Okay. I mean, I just gave, it was know, really cool to hear. I was like, wait, wait, wait this isn't in the movie. Cause I, I, just, I love audio movie book. novelizations. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've read the novelizations for Poltergeist, Nightmare on Elm nice, Street, yeah. Alien, Aliens V. Like as a kid, at least back then, before home video became a thing, that was how you got your fix. If you really loved yeah. A particular uh, sci-fi movie is you would then read the novelization because they tended to fill in all the cracks, right? You know, right, and expand yes. the mythology, and sometimes there were deviations, you know, because the novelizations tend to get written before the movie's finished. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was almost like, uh, you know, an alternate timeline sometimes. Yeah, yeah, but that only sort of enriched the experience more. And so, you know, there are deviations and alterations um, in this novelization that don't quite line up perfectly with the movie, but it's still fun. And the the author did such a great job at expanding on sections um, that the movie couldn't get into. One of my favorites being what Kong was doing. Oh, yeah. And there's a great little passage about how uh, when Ghidorah wakes up all the other Titans, Kong heard it. You know, but yeah. he, the, the author just brilliantly goes into sort of Kong's own inner monologue. You know, and how it's like he couldn't be bothered uh, because he what was happening was like the all the other creatures, the skull crawlers were were being roused by Ghidorah's call mm-hmm. and they were then starting to emerge on Skull Island. So Kong knew he had to handle that. I really am looking forward to seeing how Adam Wingard takes your universe and runs with He's it gonna do the great. movie. Yeah, it's going to be great. Um, I would also like to applaud you on the universe building that you did here, the world building. Oh, thanks. And in this particular film, you know, that very first Godzilla, I felt was very set in almost our own real world. Yeah. You had like a little window into what Monarch was, Mm -hmm. but it really wasn't very much. Mm -hmm. And then in this film, I walked out of that theater and I was like, um, I want to live in that world (laughs) and I would like to work for Monarch. Yeah. No, I'm the same way. Like that was the idea. Like I have said, I mean, many times to my friends, uh, if I was ever asked to join some secret shadowy uh, government or private organization that is well-funded and goes around hunting giant monsters or uh, researches psychic phenomenon or UFOs, aliens, what have you, yeah, yeah. I would go work for them in a heartbeat. Even if they said, you have to fake your death and say goodbye <laughs> to life you know, but we need you to come with us. Yeah, I, I would gladly do it. I'm really good at keeping secrets. This is me putting out uh, an ad <laughs> if anybody should be listening. Um, You'd be doing Godzilla's work. I would. <laughs> I, I just It would be fun, and I'd be really good at it. <laughs> I really loved all the Easter eggs that you put into the movie, too, right? Mothra like, eggs. Uh, all the Mothra eggs, yes. I mean, I, I walked out of the theater, and I think my, my initial reaction was just like, wow, that like hit, like I said, on all these notes that I really felt like it needed. And that fan service, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, one of the complaints I had about that first movie is that, like, man, it just could have been great if Godzilla's music was in there. And, yeah. oh, my God, you guys did such an amazing job. Thanks. Actually, I would love to just once again to the listeners – 
say, if you haven't listened to Bear McCreary's score for this movie, it's fantastic. Yeah, he and knocked he it out of the park. Such a great job. Yeah, such an amazing job. Thanks. Um, yeah, it was important to me. Like I, I believe that movies should reward you for paying attention, and that's directly inspired by a lot of my favorite films. Which, like to this day, I'll pop in like Rosemary's Baby. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Alien, Blade Runner, what have you. It's a very long list. And I'll notice details I never noticed before. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and noticing those details really enriches the experience. And so I like to do the same thing. So from Trick or Treat to Krampus to Godzilla, if you're paying attention, you will notice things that you probably didn't or hear visually or sonically. So whether it's a few notes uh, from a theme here and there or a layer of sound design. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the idea that because we do tend to watch these movies over and over, um, because home video is a thing, that uh, you should catch details you didn't notice before. And this film is loaded with a lot, and I have yet to see anybody catch them all. Do you have a master list? I do. <laughs> do you have it on you? <laughs> no, <kidding. laughs> I don't. Uh, but I've, you know, I've been sort of paying attention uh, here and there, like you know, seeing people sort of uh, whisper about things and speculate online. And yeah, people have come close, but there's still there's still some eggs out there that people haven't yet caught. <laughs> and I'm waiting. I'm waiting for someone mm. to just really mm. nail a couple. And like one hint that I will throw out, hopefully it'll point people in the right direction. But Bradley Whitford's character, Dr. Stanton, has a very specific line that is cribbed directly from one of the Toho movies. Ooh. See, I should have it all memorized by now, so I should just be able to And I'll, I'll throw this out. Whoever, <laughs> whoever's listening to this podcast who catches it and figures it out and tweets at me, I will send them a signed Godzilla poster. Damn, you got to get on that, listeners. But it is <laughs> At least it's one listener. specifically a Dr. Stanton okay. line. So, sidebar, uh, I was going to thank you for writing me into the movie because I felt like I was Dr. Stanton. <laughs> I'm the guy who's like, what are you doing, dude? Yeah. Like, are you out of your goddamn mind? Yeah. Like, Everybody needs a Dr. Stanton yeah. in their life. He was a great, great character for me. And like when Mark says, oh, my God. And then he goes, Zilla. I've always done that since I was a little kid. Right? It's a little right. cheesy, but that's the fun of it. <laughs> That's exactly what I said. I was can't like, make a pizza without some cheese. Dude, dude, I was into it. Totally into it. Yeah, and actually, uh, I really liked the casting in this film. You had a huge cast mm-hmm. in this movie, uh, both in the announcements and in the performances. I, I was like, wow, this is big. Were any of those actors like your number one choices or the casting they all agents? Were. Yeah? Yeah, that awesome. was the beauty of it is... Uh, Made a list, approached all the reps, you know, had meetings with a bunch of them or Skypes or whatever. And I just sort of like laid out my vision for the film and how much Godzilla meant to me. And even if they weren't already Godzilla fans, obviously had heard of the character mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or, you know, watched one on cable growing up as a kid. Right, yeah. Um, and they were all in. Cool. Yeah. Uh, what was it like to try and like, as a director, drive all of those forces? Because you had so many strong actors in this film. Utterly exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's this film nearly killed me. Uh, I'm glad you survived. <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure if I have or if I'm like stuck in the afterlife, but it's a good one. Um, but What an afterlife, right? Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, here I am in you know, the Balboa with a bunch of really cool Godzilla fans having a good time. Um, but uh, it's exhausting. I don't think... 
there's any film school in the world that can prepare you for how utterly exhausting directing a film can be physically, mentally, spiritually, whatever. Uh, it drains every last ounce of everything out of you. Do you get a good break afterwards? Or you're on your break now? I'm kind or? of on my break yeah, now. Okay. Like it, uh, I'm still finishing up a couple other projects, which are nothing compared to this. So it's like, it's barely work. Um, <laughs> But uh, I'm, I need to take like a full two to three months off, probably around Christmas. Right on, right on. It, it almost like the, finishing this didn't feel complete probably until tonight in a weird way. Oh, weird. Well, only yeah. because it's like, you know, the, the film came out on digital last week and mm-hmm. it's coming out on Blu-ray Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And that's where it finally feels like it's fully unleashed because the, the theatrical release in a lot of ways is just the precursor to home video these days. Sure. You know, so only now is the mission feeling complete. Right on. So I can wander back into the ocean, into my lair now. <laughs> I was going to say you could wander into the theater and like stand at the back and watch people yeah. <laughs> enjoy it. Yeah. Know? Talking about uh, working with that cast, there's one thing I wanted to bring up. I heard about the sound system, the onset mm-hmm. sound system yeah. that you guys used. Behemoth? Yep. Is that what you called it? Yep. So can you tell me a little bit about that and how it worked and if you have any cool stories from using it on set? Because um, I don't know if the, the listeners have heard about this yet. Uh, so Behemoth was uh, a sound system I set up with my sound crew. And what they did is they positioned these big speakers around the set. And on the days when the monsters were a presence in a scene, mm-hmm. I I could control and add the roars of the different creatures to the scene. So instead of the actors just sort of staring at a tennis ball on a stick and uh, having to imagine a roar, the creatures had a presence. So you heard Godzilla's roar, you heard Rodan and Mothra's screeches, and it added something. And the logic for me was, listen, there was a, a point when we were all uh, a bunch of monkeys like running from predators, you know, and hiding in trees. Yeah. And uh, biologically, we're pre-programmed to react to certain noises. So a growl from... A carnivore, especially, yeah, yeah. you know, and uh, I noticed that it sharpened the actor's performances just a little bit more, <laughs> you know, so the eyes went a little bit wider, their pulse quickened, um, and it just added something. And it was partially inspired by back in 2004, I visited the set of um, Peter Jackson's King Kong. Oh, okay, yeah. And I saw how uh, they brought out Andy Circus. And had him do the roars for Kong whenever uh, they were shooting Naomi Watts' scenes, mm, and okay, so it's like yeah. it gave her something to play off of. Yeah. It, you, yeah, you're feeding that your actors. Yeah, that way. Yeah, you're giving them something to chew. Yeah, on and plus sure. it was fun. Just like you know, at the beginning of every day to start off with Godzilla's roar. How loud was Behemoth? It was loud. Yeah, <laughs> it was loud, and uh, it was fun because I just felt like a monster DJ, you know, in my tent, and you know just. It just, it felt like we were invoking Godzilla's spirit. Nice. Nice. The spirit of Godzilla yeah. should reside in all of us. Yeah. I also really appreciated you weaving the human action with the monster action in through the monster action. They were like really interacting with mm-hmm. those fights, especially the Antarctic battle where mm-hmm. everybody's trying to like literally everybody's just trying to survive. Yeah. You know, this huge battle between these two monsters. That's actually something that I felt like 
it's very, very close to the Toho films. You know, like the the screenwriter Shinichi Sekizawa, he's just really well known for doing that. You've got human action going right through the monster action and going right back into the human action. It's just a like a cycle, and I mm-hmm. really like that about Thanks. King of the Monsters. Yeah, that was um that was a choice because I felt like there are also a lot of Godzilla movies where your human cast is actually safely tucked away in a bunker, mm-hmm. just sort of watching things on a monitor. Um, and while we wanted a dash of that, it's just, I felt like, you know, it was time to really throw humans into the fray, you know, they were and, and, in the fray. Yeah. Sure, yes. Yeah. And really, you know, the story, the theme of the film is very much about our connection to the creatures mm-hmm. that, uh, everything is connected. All life forms are connected. And, uh, it's not just about the monsters fighting. It's also about how humans have to navigate in a world where these creatures right, yeah. are looming above us. So it felt important to me to make sure that, you know, whether it was uh, them trying to get away from Rodan and the Argo or, you know, they're being underneath the creatures fight in Boston or in Antarctica yeah. that I didn't want all the human characters to be so far removed. Like they had to be organically part of it. Yes, it's very cool. Did you have any favorite moments, like when the creatures and the humans interacted? I love Ghidorah eating uh, Dr. Graham. <laughs> I, because I love Sally Hawkins so much. Yeah. And, um, you know, really wanted to find a way for Ghidorah to establish himself as a motherfucker, that he's not just an overly aggressive dragon, that he's vindictive and smart. <laughs> and mean and of course like he's not going to gain any sort of real nutritional value out of eating a human that's like you yeah. know us eating a, a peanut but i guarantee you that if you are frozen in the ice for a few million years you'll go after a peanut if it's running across the yeah. floor you know um but <laughs> it was really just a show how harsh and cruel of a character he can be to kill off a character that is so lovable and kind and warm. And honestly, like the reason I brought her and Ken back is because they were my favorite characters from the previous movie. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. like, like I wanted the movie to be about them. Like they're the ones that, yeah, they're really, your door into Monarch. Yeah, totally, and, yeah. And like they are the people I wanted to be, but I thought, well, killing off Vivian Graham in the first act is just, it's, it's, it's how Ghidorah would establish himself as, as this, really mean villain he is a really mean villain in this movie this movie also has a lot of toho style science in it you know like the orca specifically Mm -hmm. and you know monarch using bioacoustics to track and monitor the titans you know the oxygen destroyer obviously Mm -hmm. comes into play Mm -hmm. Uh, did you have any favorite devices or weapons from the japanese series i love them all what i loved about the japanese movies is how much they invoke science you know, it's one of the few sci-fi uh, franchises where scientists are the heroes. Yes. And yes. it was important to me that scientists be the heroes in this movie, too, especially in a day and age where scientists are being questioned. Um, you know, because I think we have seen so many movies where, okay, the superhero straps on the mech suit, you know, or right. the specialist you know, military guy comes in and saves the day. And it's like, no, let the nerds finally come in and save the day and let's see them put their lives at risk. And, you know, Toho has a long tradition of, of scientists and their inventions 
uh, taking center stage. And what I loved about that in the Toho movies was you saw that humanity was trying, that humanity was trying to adapt or trying to communicate with the creatures. And that was sort of the optimistic viewpoint um, that I found really appealing, that human beings are smart. And when we try and we focus and we work together, theoretically, we might find a way to survive in a world where giant mm-hmm. monsters exist. And so it was important to carry on that tradition in this movie. So that's where the orca came from, you know, which is sort of a sister device to the um, oxygen destroyer in my mind. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, where the oxygen destroyer is purely a weapon. I love the idea that um, humans with good intentions would try to create a device that could communicate with them, but of course some asshole would try to weaponize that. Yes, yes. You Actually, know? I was, I totally have that written down in here. It's like, mm-hmm. I loved that about the Orca. It's that classic scientist, you know, like almost like Dr. Sarazawa's yeah. issue in the first film, yeah. except he doesn't have something good coming out of the oxygen destroyer. Yeah. It's just that whole like, well, if you use it the right way, it's a good thing. Sure. Exactly. Like nuclear technology, if used exactly, properly, yes. you know, with yes. very great care, it can be a wonderful um, energy resource. It just tends to be that, you know, some asshole comes along and is like, hey, how can I kill people with this thing? Um but, you know, it's also based on technology that exists. We've been trying to find ways to communicate with whales and dolphins for decades. Uh, and it just felt like this would be the natural progression that, you know, we're talking five years after the last film. Obviously, the scientific community would be getting busy trying to find ways to come up uh, so that we could adapt to living with the creatures. Um, that's also why I like the idea of new weaponry. So the Argo being this sort of yes, flying battle yeah. fortress, like we would need to find ways to deploy, you know, troops and aircraft or uh, get into rescue missions really quickly. Um, same thing with sort of the modern day versions of the Mazers underwater yeah, yeah. or even an underwater base. You know, that I wanted to show that in the five years since the last film, humans are trying yeah, and they certainly are. I mean, that's another reason I was like, I want to work for Monarch. Yeah, right. And going going down into Castle Bravo. Yeah, it was just really cool. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to work there too. Yeah, right. <laughs> when when are applications being taken there for that? Uh, so, what would you do with the orca if you had the orca? Oh God, I would push that button so many times. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's it's. I don't know if I'll get crucified for saying this, but like, if I could push a button to wake up. A race of giant monsters. I would do it without hesitation. I would do it repeatedly and enthusiastically. <laughs> enthusiastically, because smash that button. <laughs> but no, it's just it's it's not that I want to see you know millions of people dead or anything like that. But besides the visual spectacle of actual giant monsters, I think it would rally humanity and unite us <laughs> in 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 a way. But. Um, you know, humans are a very arrogant species, and maybe we're overdue for humbling from uh, the old ones. Bring up those old ones. At least ask them what they feel about this. I know? don't think they're happy with us. <laughs> Based on what's going on in the Amazon right now, I don't think oh, they're happy with no, us. No, probably not. So let's play a hypothetical game. Let's pretend, aside from Godzilla, that the other th- you know three big monsters that you had in this film, were th- they were just too expensive for, for Legendary. And so Toho says, well, we've got this whole C team, you know, who would you have chosen outside of the big four to try and work into King of the Monsters? Uh, Gigan, Biollante, King Caesar, uh, Angerus, uh, those would be probably my first go-tos. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Go Gigan. Woo. 
yeah. Love Geigen. Yeah. Actually, I keep uh, there's a there's an artist named Dope Pope. Oh, he's great. He's, yeah, he's, yeah, he's amazing. Awesome. And I, yeah. one of the first things I ever saw from him was a Geigen inspired by the Muto design. Yeah, he's from yeah. I've seen it. It's Ooh. phenomenal. It's. I was like, uh, yes, let's get that in a movie, please. Yeah, I think he did a Shin uh, King Ghidorah too, which was really Ooh, great. Cool, yeah. cool. Yeah, he's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So, would you say you're happy with King of the Monsters and its reception? Yeah. I wouldn't be sitting here tonight if I wasn't. I'm really glad that you made this movie. Yeah, man. yeah, uh, you know, like it's I, fantastic. I had to crawl through glass uh, for a while there, but uh, yeah, I'm very happy with it. I'm especially happy that the fans are happy. Yeah, uh, I would rather have that than the opposite. And what I mean by that is, let's say the critics were writing love letters, which they certainly were not. With this film, I don't know why they weren't. It's okay. They yeah. It's okay. You know, it's it's it. That's all detritus that falls away. I know? agree. I agree because it's like you know when I think back to first falling in love with Godzilla, I don't know how much uh, money the original Godzilla movies made. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the critical critical reception of those movies was. All I know is I fell in love with those movies. Excellent. And what was really interesting was going back and finding out that the original 54 film was trashed by critics. Right, yeah. You know, on both in Japan and in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that even Roger Ebert, uh, before he passed away, went back and looked at the 54 original film and still trashed it. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, like even, <laughs> even after it had established itself as a classic, he was still crapping on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it doesn't matter in the long run. I would, I would rather, if, if the critics loved it and the fans hated it, I, then I would have been upset. Yeah, I could you see know? that. Right? If it got 95% in Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> but then the crowds at uh, Godzilla Fest are booing and hissing at it, <laughs> then I, I would curl up into a ball of shame, you know? Yeah. Um, or, you know, or even let's say it made a billion dollars at the box office, yeah. you know, and your mainstream audiences are, are, are treating it like Avengers, but the Godzilla fans are calling it crap. I would still be upset and yeah, ashamed. Yeah. So I would much rather have true Godzilla fans embracing it, which is what's happening, mm-hmm. and have certain other demographics turning their backs on it because that they go away. Yeah. You know, what's more important to me is like I saw, you know, in the audience tonight, just dozens of kids who were loving it. And it's like, okay, this film has at least inspired another generation. Yeah. You know, outside of the premiere, have you had a chance to see the the movie with other fans? Uh, A little bit. uh, A little bit. It's hard for me to sit through the whole thing again. Yeah. Because it's it's just, it's hard. (laughs) Um, I've seen it too many times. Uh, so I sort of dip in and out at screenings, uh, you know, when I feel like it's a particular scene that the audience would react well to. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the Thank podcast. Thank you. This is really fun. Thank you so much for creating such a memorable and exciting Godzilla movie for American audiences and beyond, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I would love to see you come back and 
do more giant monster stuff in the future. I know you're not in a rush and you definitely no. aren't on, on board for the next film. But actually, are you involved with the next film? Uh, I, my writing partner, Zach Shields, and I helped out with the script a little bit. Okay, yeah. Um, that said, I mean, that was when they were in pre-production and it's been, you know, now they've shot it and they're cutting it. So I have no idea how much of what we did is left. Yeah. Um, but it was in pretty good shape going into it. So I'm hoping that's, nice. you know, that's, that remains true. Yeah. I was really uh, impressed that you guys, like basically you were working on King of the Monsters and Adam was already beginning things for, yeah. for Kong. Yeah. For, uh, Godzilla versus Kong. So yeah. after King of the Monsters, I'm really looking forward to seeing how Godzilla versus Kong turns out. Cause I think it's probably the number one movie that I've heard people say, we got to get that back. We got to right. get another fight between those two big yeah, monsters, you know? It's the big Yeah, who do you want draw. to win, though? Well, Godzilla, I really. Know. I, mean, I know, right? <laughs> dude, I, so sidebar, I actually spent a year in Japan when I was a kid. Mm, wow. And I didn't know much about Godzilla movies, but I knew that there was a Godzilla versus a King Kong movie. Mm-hmm. And I just remember drawing cartoons of Godzilla having just blasted this ashy looking King Kong. <laughs> and like, how does he fight that? So I'm sure we'll the movie will out. Yeah, it. exactly. Yeah. Right? Anyway, thank yeah. you so much for You're being welcome. on the show. Thank you so much for uh, everything you've done for the, for the fandom here in the States. Thank you. Uh, it's been awesome. Cool. 